We're in a new age of digital medicine and almost universal availability of information, leading to better diagnoses and more successful treatments, with the potential to reduce suffering and extend lives. But with this great opportunity comes new risks, and we all need to be conscious, well, sometimes I'm not conscious, but that's a different story, about how we use new technology and share information. My guest today has unique insights to share on this front, both as a security and privacy professional and as a patient himself, as you'll hear in a moment. Cybersecurity, data protection, privacy. You like to stay ahead of the curve and listen to experts who are leading the way in deriving greater value from data with a more organized approach to data privacy. You're like us, just a few deviations past the norm. You are a Privacy Sigma writer. Hey, writers, Michelle Dennity, Vice President, Chief Privacy Officer at Cisco, here with you again. Happy Tuesday. Um, Jay Libov is a friend of mine that goes way back. He's a former security and privacy advisor with Delta Airlines, helping to formulate corporate infosec policies. He's a world traveler. He is a, uh, a, a multilinguist, now living and working in Barcelona, Spain. Jay, give us a little bit of background. Uh, why Spain? What are you doing? And um, then we'll get into... Of all things, for privacy professionals, what's going on with your medical situation? Sure thing. Hi, Michelle, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. This is going to be fun. I'm so happy you're here. I'd actually like to shortcut, and I'll get back to what you asked me in a minute, but in your opening, you talked about people being more conscious about how to use the technology, but exactly in medical situations, and you were joking about sometimes you're not conscious, but in medical, sometimes we're really not conscious. We really cannot put the the thought into anything other than right now, my life is, is terrifying me. My friends are afraid. I don't know what's going on. And I, maybe I don't want to, but I need it. To share, and we'll go into some of what recently happened to me, because as odd as it may seem to, to people who aren't us, who aren't privacy professionals, we sometimes share way more than other people do, even while our job is, is to help that not happen except what it ought to. Yeah, it's funny because I I often get that commentary of like, you know, aren't you a hypocrite because you use every (laughs) single social network platform and you talk about all sorts of crazy stuff. And my answer is always, of course, no. Um, Part of experiencing the networks and experiencing data it is part of my work life. I, I, if I'm not in it, then how, how can I make it better is sort of my perspective on that. And then I think the other thing, um, is, you know, you and I have seen each other in person, like maybe three times. And yet we've been able to maintain a friendship that goes decades. Yep. So and has been in, invaluable to me. And, and, and you and I, we're not the only couple where that's been the case for me. Um, I don't know if I can mention names. Uh, Hugo Teufel, who had been the chief privacy officer of the Department of Homeland Security. We're going to make Hugo come on, and maybe you can co-host it with me that day. I would love that. He and I had never met in person, yet we had held a friendship for over a decade, up to and including late night, how do you deal with the frustrations of call once? I was just having a bad time of it, and he was there, and he would never sleeps. You post something no. on Facebook, he answers at every hour of the day. I, I don't know how he does it. You made a comment a moment ago about 
uh, oh, Michelle, you're, you're a hypocrite because you use all these social media platforms. I created my Facebook profile because I got into privacy. Yes, me too. If I wasn't going to use the tools, how could I possibly have help other people secure them or help my employer at the time that was Delta use it in a way that didn't negatively surprise somebody around their privacy? Yeah, absolutely. So so let's talk a little bit about your background, Jay. I mean, tell us a little bit of kind of, uh, you know, how you approach privacy and security is, is you're coming more from a technical angle than I am, right? Absolutely. Um, I came from, you know, super uber <laughs> geek, oh my God, you're scary smart kind of. That's what people used to say to me. Uh, now I they just say I'm one... scary. It, well, I am scary. <laughs> Um, I interviewed once for a job as a, a relatively senior privacy person for a really giant U.S.-based corporation that I, I won't mention names, and they knew I wasn't a lawyer, and usually they interviewed only lawyers for these roles because of the kinds of things that people had to do, and the person said, you know, are you comfortable playing a lawyer on TV? And I said, yes, absolutely, because although I came from tech, I read so much privacy law and case argument and theory. Okay, I go back to Uber geek, scary, you know, whatever I was. Um, where did I come from? I started playing with computers in 1976 when I was eight years old. Mm -hmm. And this idea of being able to put my fingers on a keyboard and make it do something was so cool. <laughs> and over the years, I made it do a lot of things for a lot of companies, smaller and then larger. And somewhere along the way, around the very late 1990s, very early 2000s, when I had done software engineering and I had done system engineering and I had done network and I had done pre-post sales, tech stuff, digital equipment corporation for the rest of us out there <laughs> old enough to remember what yeah, that was. Tech was a great company. It was. Miss it. Kind of. Um, I, by the weirdest path possible, got offered a job as an information security engineer at Delta Airlines. My then wife, my former wife, was working in the human resources department of Delta. And this was before everybody in the world had high-speed internet, and people still had dial-up. Uh, and literally, I mean, the company would pay for a phone line and a modem, and you would dial into the company. We don't mean dial-up internet here. Right. I had dial-up Internet. I was one of the beta test users of MindSpring Enterprises that oh, became God. Earthlink. Yes, yes. And so I actually had a, a pegged-up internet connection, which if my wife needed to dial into her office, meant I had to lose my internet so she could go to work. And so I asked her to ask the tech department at Delta if they couldn't give us, you know, a VPN. And I think it was a field service engineer kind of backed and forth and backed and forth between me and her and the IT department and security team and back. And at one point, the tech support person, the field service person, said to her, you know, I, I think you guys should stop. I think you're really annoying them. I, I was really annoying them because the next thing I got was an unsolicited email. Are you looking for a job? <laughs> Good. And I said yes. And I became the third InfoSec engineer at Delta Airlines in 1998. I love it. And, and when you say you got an email in 1998, it was like chain letters, cat videos, and like maybe one or two a day that were relevant business emails. I remember that time very fondly. <laughs> I'm going to one-up, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've actually owned my own personal domain since before then. I love it. Told you. Uber geek. 
I love it. Well, so that's, I mean, that's an important thing, right? So, and I think it's, it is uh, consistent across people who are Sigma people and, and deviate from the norm in that way is you, you follow your curiosity where it goes and, and you have an infinite level of curiosity. So, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you're in, so you're in Barcelona, Spain, which is like a dream situation for a lot of folks. Tell us a little bit about how you got there and how that's relevant to, you know, your thinking about privacy and security and where you're at today. It almost came, you know, chicken and egg out of order. Uh, my wife, who happens to be Japanese, lived and worked in Japan until she was about 30 and then left because she wanted a freer culture. Uh, had originally wanted to move to Europe, but it just turned out to be a whole lot more practical to move to the U.S., and I'm glad that happened because that's how I met her. And many years later, when I left Delta after doing security and five years in getting an offer from the chief security officer slash chief privacy officer, that role at Delta was one of the first companies that joined the security and the data protection or privacy leadership functions in a single person. I moved over from the security team to the privacy team, and I took on, by the time I left, I, I didn't have the title of deputy chief privacy officer, but it's kind of what I was doing for the last year or two that I was at Delta. Mm-hmm. And when I left Delta, I sent my resume, or my CV, as we say here in Europe, mm-hmm. to, well, my entire professional network, and that included companies that had been providing or were still providing services to Delta. Part of my role at Delta in those last years was overseeing security, privacy, and business continuity compliance in our supply chain. And one of these companies, which happened to have its operation center in Barcelona, it was a call center company. It took English language phone calls from Delta's customers, knew me because I showed up on site a couple of times every year to kind of audit their compliance with all those things. They went, you, come here, move to Spain, be our chief security officer. And I went, sure. Cool. And that's how I got here. It it wasn't really that I sought it out specifically, although we had wanted to move to Europe. It sought me out. And it's like the first opportunity was Barcelona. Menos mal, gente. We were thrilled. (laughs) And then a year later, the global recession happened and the job disappeared. And, you know, everything got really complicated. And we stayed despite it all. We stuck out some hard times and it worked. So... Let's talk to when we were talking about doing the show today, what we were talking about is um, context and time and and patient changing context. So let's talk a little bit about um, your current situation, if you're comfortable doing that. And and what you were talking about is how you were becoming informed. Absolutely. So for anybody who's seen the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Kindergarten Cop, one of the little kids in this class kept saying, it's a tumor. And Arnold would go, it's not a tumor. (laughs) In my case, it's a tumor. It's a tumor. Um, Yeah. A little more than a month ago, I took a nap in the afternoon and woke up with earth-shattering headaches, headaches of a magnitude I had never experienced or dreamed of in my life. They were more or less the same as a month earlier when I had broken a tooth and a half at dinner and had to seek an emergency dentist uh, at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. And after pumping my mouth full of Novocaine, she started to, to drill out the damaged tooth. And I went through the roof and she said, oh, well, the nerve is already inflamed. She said, this is going to hurt a bit. Ooh. Stuck the needle with the Novocaine right into the center of the tooth. And I swear my hand left a dent on the steel arm of the chair. It was three seconds of the worst pain ever. 
and she's looking down at me, and I'm white and sweating. She goes, "It's okay now. It's over." And she was right. But I now what post I now know what post traumatic stress disorder is. I'm having really it do. right now. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> and these headaches, they were in a different way. That kind of pain. They were something is so wrong. Get medical treatment right now. I called my neighbor. I was up at our house in this beautiful little mountain town. Fortunately, he was there. He drove me to the nearest hospital. They did a CT scan. And it's, you have a pituitary tumor. And a few days later, as the headaches gradually were subsiding with rolling series of potent meds of every sort, I started reading about this. And I learned far more than I ever wanted to. And partly... That's because we have the internet and lots of medical journals and articles are out there and the big medical centers put data out there so that we can learn and we can understand our own medical status. And partly it's because people share their experiences. Yeah. And so I have a pituitary macroadenoma that produces insulinoid growth factor one that provokes the body to produce excessive amounts of growth hormone. At one point, the endocrinologist in the hospital where I finally ended up, the one where you met me, which is the reference place in Catalonia where I live and one of the reference hospitals in all of Spain for this sort of thing, they said, you know, the reason that you had all these nice muscles the last couple of years is basically you've been naturally doping. You didn't know it. Oh, gosh. It's true. My body was producing excess amounts of growth hormone, which is one of the things that athletes dope with. And I'm like, oh, I miss my muscles. I liked those. I'm going to have to work a lot harder to get them back (laughs) after this is all over and they allow me back into the gym. It won't be so easy the next time. My doctor says the same thing, just being over 50. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just over 50, and so thanks for reminding me. I have a double whammy going against me now. Wow. It's all right. We're looking good, Jay. We're looking good. We are. Up until very recently, and the beard started going a bit white, nobody ever knew my age. Now they kind of do. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I was diagnosed with a tumor, and I needed to understand it, and a lot of it was just reading, but then I needed to get feedback and bounce ideas off people and see if my understanding of stuff was realistic and matched the actual experiences that other people who've been through it before had had. And so on Facebook, I found a number of private Facebook groups. These are groups you have to ask to join. The people who run the groups ask you questions. They check your answers. (laughs) And they only let people who really have the issue and who are going to follow the group rules join the group. So I joined up with four or five of these groups. Amongst those groups, they count maybe 15,000 people, every one of whom has one or another variant of pituitary tumor and endocrine insufficiency, something about their body not working right relating to these things, the pituitary gland, the adrenal glands, or the, the hypothalamus. So, But you're right now, you're in the earliest stage of learning about your condition. So I I think what you're illustrating here, Jay, is the hunger for knowledge when you're in panic mode and when you're not sure what's going to happen. It The appetite for you to share and the willingness and the excitement, actually, of coming together with groups is really at its zenith, right? Yes. If if you'd like, I can send you offline 
copies. Actually, you've seen, because you're my friend on Facebook and you've seen this stuff. I posted detailed medical records and reports and interpretations, literally not just to these private Facebook groups, but to my, well, my feed isn't public, but I have lots of friends and lots of friends of friends. I mean, lots of people in the world could find every detail about what I've been going through. And I didn't have time to consider, you know, how good an idea is that because I had to deal with, I may be very, very sick and I need to be able to manage it and putting it out there will help me do so. And I commented earlier that a long time ago, 25 years ago, pre-Facebook, pre-privacy officers, I had another medical condition and there was this thing called the Usenet, which was an online distributed bulletin board system all over the world. And the whole idea of privacy was much, much less mature, but it was the same deal. Something scary medical happened to me, and I needed to share and get feedback, and I did. And back then, I didn't even know to think about privacy, and today I certainly do. But it's what you said. We're in this emergency situation, and the last thing we can do is worry if we're oversharing because we need to save our lives. And and that's a really important thing because I I think the the privacy nihilism of the past has said, look, kids are willing to share online and these patients are sharing their conditions online. It isn't privacy a degraded ethic. And I think what you're talking about is not that you've given up on privacy or even that you'd suspended privacy. It's that you actively chose to share. And the return on that sharing investment was building community, comfort, knowledge, um, a way of going forward, right? In that context of time, that doesn't mean that every piece of information and all of your blood work should now be publicized, right? Is that's That doesn't seem to be a good expectation. Very true. Uh, and also a little bit idealistic, which is why people like me and above all people like you it's not why we exist, but it's why we do the stuff that we do. Um, sure, my, my goal in sharing wasn't giving up my privacy. Did I choose? Okay, I'm a certified privacy professional. Even in that emergent situation, I was making something of a choice, and maybe I had more ability to make the choice than the normal person does. When I say normal, there is nothing pejorative about it. It's, you know, what, what anybody <laughs> like they're would normal, have to do we're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and we're not, and that's a good thing. We do the stuff that we do so that everybody else doesn't have to be a privacy expert, and especially when something bad is going on with them and they need to share and they need to get that feedback, that the world in which they do it, hopefully by design and by default, will be a little bit more privacy protective. Yeah. And so you're touching on something, you know, oftentimes um, and for years and years, the 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 analogy has been made or or the the metaphor has been used that a patient in a an ambulance should not uh you know should be forced to or or should have a have taken from them all of their information you know you you don't want to be in an ambulance unconscious and be allergic to penicillin and have an iv needle of penicillin stuck in your body and so that's like people saying oh well it's it's better to share because this outlier case and my argument to that has always been this is the case to me 
not for oversharing or permanent sharing, but instead for privacy and ethics engineering. This is where I want to think about these cases because you're not the first person to be diagnosed with something that's very unusual that you can't go to WebMD or some of these other online sites and get a perfect answer. Even your own doctors may not have the right kind of information that you want to share but people who are living with this sort of thing in their own heads, in your case, in my case, um, it, you know, you want to you want to have that conversation with them, and, and and it suits a certain purpose, right? And it's and it's risky because you don't want to get medical advice from other patients necessarily because what works for them may not be right for you. But at the same time, I think this goes to the structure of various things. Can you have a private sharing group on a social platform. You absolutely, I think, should be able to expect that you do have that and you're not going to be constantly inundated um, with marketing for that condition. I, I have multiple sclerosis and I can't tell you what, when I first got online and, and started sharing in, you know, this is 20 years ago now, in the panic of thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be in a wheelchair like tomorrow, um, I, you know, I shared a lot of things. And, and the worst was this constant marketing of stuff back to me. And the worst of it was, and I actually shared this with the pharmaceutical that did this, when my daughter had a condition and she received in her own name. And now when you're eight years old and you get a big manila envelope with your name on it, that is exciting. That's exciting. <laughs> like That's like grandma letter exciting. And so she got this letter and she opened it up, and because the pharmaceuticals have to give the side effects, I found her under her bed, literally under her bed, curled up in a ball, crying, because one of the complications of this experimental medication that was sent to my daughter from a pharmaceutical company, because we had shared her diagnosis with some other families going through situation, um, was death. And she's like, Mommy, you've been lying to me. I'm going to die. And I was like, oh, my God. And so, of course, you know, the the blessing and the curse of being a privacy officer is that we are a bit of a rare creature. And I was able to uh, call the cell phone of the CPO of that pharma. <laughs> and uh, my, my voice was heard, uh, you, you might say. So uh, so let's let's wrap this up so that we're not leaving on overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. Where does context and sharing of of condition and and also your condition I, I has vastly like the the prognosis has vastly improved from those first dark days right yes um so this the private facebook groups if you said those words private facebook group and, i would and, wager and for the future the jay if in case someone plays this in a year or two facebook was a social networking company that was really important um, just in case um, they don't fix their bits. That, that Ooh, sharp end of the stick, Michelle. I love them too, but get yeah. your acts together, people. Come on yep, now. Yep. Absolutely. Anyway, sorry. So if we say that phrase, private Facebook groups, I would wager that more than half of the users of Facebook today, they would recoil and they would think, it can't be. It doesn't matter what the settings are. It doesn't matter what you do. There's no such thing. There's no privacy on Facebook. They're going to violate it. Yeah, no. I actually am not particularly concerned 
that Facebook would violate the privacy of these private Facebook groups and share the identities and the contents of the posts beyond the members of the groups. There's lots of things that Facebook does very wrong. Something like that, I don't think, I'm not particularly worried about. Now, a member of any of these groups could violate the privacy. There's no way to stop that. Yeah. Somebody could lie to become a member of the group. There's, there's no meaningful way for the people who host these groups, and they're all very well-intentioned, and they all have very good rules for their private groups, but there's no real way to stop somebody who's lying and cheating to get in and then do whatever they would want to do. But we have to take a degree of that chance because of the value. And you made a comment about maybe your doctors, the the first ones that you, for any particular value of you, somewhere in the world that isn't Barcelona, that is a leading medical center, or New York or Boston, maybe you're in a little town somewhere, and your doctors don't know this stuff. What I see from the 15,000 other people in these private groups talking about their medical journeys is that an awful lot of them they get seen by doctors who don't understand their conditions as well as they do right. because of what they've been able to get by researching online and by talking with other people in the groups. So this stuff literally is life-saving. We are making a choice to expand what is our privacy circle at a time when we need that sharing and that feedback because our professional medical circle, the one we have easy access to, they might not be good enough. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely, and and I think you've illustrated the balance beautifully. Um, I I think probably one of the most annoying things in the world for any doctor now is dealing with the uh, the Google doctors. You know, your your Google search does not meet my seven years of preparation to be a specialist. I I hear that from doctors all the time, and it's true for lawyers too. I love people that are like, well, I read the GDPR and it says this, and I'm like, you are so cute. Um, <laughs> But it makes for a really good debate. Um, You know, I often show up at my doctor's office and he gives me the hard eye roll, but he always listens. Um, He may be rolling his eyes, but some stuff he's like, okay, snake bites. Nope, that doesn't work. That bee sting thing actually does. It's weird. Here's the chemical compound, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, And so I think it's not the worst thing in the world to challenge professionals and not have that wall. It's not the worst thing in the world to feel confident that you can change your outcomes with diet and meditation and yoga in addition to Western medicine. And it sounds like what you're getting um, from your health in healthcare in Barcelona and your background in security and privacy um, is really getting the right medical treatment for you and your wife in this time and the support that you need. And, you know, the, the blessing of Facebook that, that um, for future me, uh, that was a social media company that existed. And um, when it adopted privacy engineering, it saved itself. Um, That's, that's how I knew that you were in the hospital. And I, sent you a note. I said, hey, Jay, I'm going to be in Barcelona for Cisco Live. Do you want to visit? And that's well, the to magic. Be, to, be, to be fair, <laughs> we had been in touch in advance because I'm a cyclist, you're a cyclist. And it was, yes. hey, Michelle, you're coming to Cisco Live. That was Let's the go plan. for a bike ride. <laughs> yeah. And then I got sick. It's like, hey, Michelle, would you visit me in the hospital instead? And the world, <laughs> Michelle rocks. She and her, um, I, I forget what... Um, Susan's title is, came and spent an hour and a half with me in that hospital. It was uh, 
so good for me and all of the friends and, and others who supported me through it. Ah, uh, and we're recording this on Valentine's Day, so that makes my heart warm. <laughs> That's true, too. Um, well, th- thank you so much for your time and your candor and your relentless hunt for privacy and security. Before I let you go, can you give us the name of the group that you're working with right now? It's an exciting initiative so that people can check that out, too. Uh, do you mean the Information Security Forum? I do. The Information Security Forum's a 30-year-old, originally European government-funded effort just to help the world, companies and governments, do better at managing information security and managing information risk. It's not something that we as individuals can join. The, the members are companies. It's a nonprofit uh, private society. It no longer gets any government funding. It's completely independent. And I do consulting only to the member companies of the Information Security Forum, only on the research that we do, which is business methodologies for getting a handle on what risks our businesses have because we have information Mm -hmm. and how to manage them. So we don't do technology. We might tell you a firewall is a known control for this area. You should probably have one. We won't give you any opinion about which one. Might help you you know, know what the features are, but then it's up to you to choose products and, and deployment. So I have done consulting to banks, financial services industry, natural resources companies, shipping and logistics and others on risk management practices where the risk goes to the business but comes from the information. And I love it. I love it. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you can hear the excitement in your voice about it too. And so if you are in a company and you're listening, it's the Information Security Forum. It is a 30 year institution and you can actually get someone like Jay or even Jay himself um, to come and help you, whether you're an SMB or a larger company. Um, So check it out and see if your company's already a member. And if they're not, consider some membership. And thank you, Jay Libov. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, you know, continued recovery and success, my friend. And we will get that bike ride in one day. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to that very much. And Michelle, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. This was a lot of fun, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And hey, Sigma Riders out there, it's a wrap. You've been listening to Privacy Sigma Riders, brought to you by the Cisco Security and Trust Organization. Special thanks to Corey Westerhold for our original theme music. Our producers are Susan Borden and David Ball. And a special shout out and thank you to our Cisco TV production partners. You can find all our episodes on the Cisco Trust Center at cisco.com slash go slash writers or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Then please take a moment to review and rate us on iTunes. To stay ahead of the curve between episodes, consider following us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And you can find me, Michelle Dennity, on Twitter at mdennity. Until next time.